rather than sort of start by overloading you with information, I'll ask at this point whether there are any questions on what I've covered so far. Because I want you to feel free to ask questions. And don't, feel, don't worry if the question seems foolish or something that... Please, please. No, that is mentioned in the suttas, yeah. Especially when sees this in the Anguttara Nikaya. I mentioned one source. It's the Book of Fours, Sutta number 160. Here the Buddha is speaking about those things that contribute to the long lifespan of the, of the Dhamma. And one of those is that the monks will approach, the junior monks will approach those monks who are learned, heirs to the heritage, experts on the Dhamma, experts on the vinaya or discipline, and experts on the matikas, for people who want to ask questions. Yeah, that makes it easy, easier to get the questions. Hello, I have a very quick question. Is, it generally, is this a generally accepted view that the connection between the Samyutta Nikaya and the Vibhanga, is that sort of what people... Some, this, this connection is this um, common in opinion. I would say that this is pretty widespread amongst um, scholars who investigate the Abhidhamma. There is a book, it's by, I think he's an Austrian scholar, Frau Wallner. I'll write his name. E, I think it's Eric Frau Wallner. It's called Studies in the Abhidharma Literature and the origins of the Buddhist philosophical systems, I think. It's published by SUNY, S State University of New York. And A.K. Water has a book called Indian Buddhism, I believe. Well, he especially traces the origins of the Abhidharma to the Matika, but I think he also mentions the Vibhanga Suttas. And then the Chinese scholar, Venerable Yinshan, he also traces the origin of the Abhidharma to largely to the Vibhanga Suttas, as at least one source amongst others. Um, I just want to clarify, um, you had said scholars are not sure whether the Buddha actually uh, passed down the uh, Abhidhamma. I didn't say that scholars are uncertain about that. There's a, a pretty general consensus among scholars that the Buddha didn't teach the Abhidhamma, the text of the Abhidhamma Bitaka, as they've come down to us today. Okay. So it's so extensive. Yeah. Who do scholars believe actually put that down in writing? Okay, this comes to an important topic, which I think I'm going to touch on that. Let me see whether I have it for this morning or the afternoon. Yeah, I do have it actually for today's class. Okay, let us say that Let me give my conjecture that probably the first development of the Abhidhamma would have started amongst the circle of the Buddha's disciples, perhaps the school or the group of disciples that were connected with Sariputta. But now when we speak about Abhidhamma, often Theravadins think, the Abhidhamma is the Abhidhamma Bitaka in the Pali Canon, but 
there's actually three Abhidharma systems. One is the Abhidharma system of the Theravada, which is written in Pali, preserved in Pali, followed in the countries of Southern Asia. There's another Abhidharma system which developed in Northern India in Kashmir. Let's say it spread in Kashmir. It was widely studied in Kashmir and Northern India. By, it was followed by a school which is now extinct called the Savastivada. That system also has a, a collection of seven books, very different from the Theravada seven books. And that system is preserved in Chinese translation, but it's also studied by Tibetan monks and by learned Chinese and Japanese monks. The third Abhidharma system contains consists of only one text, an Abhidharma treatise called the treatise spoken by, it's called the Sariputra Abhidharma treatise. It seems to have belonged to a school that flourished perhaps in Gandhara, which now corresponds to Pakistan, Afghanistan. It's preserved only in Chinese translation in a somewhat, stra- somewhat strange style of Chinese, a little difficult to understand. And that text seems to be affiliated in some ways with the Theravada and Abhidhamma, because both the Theravada and the school in which the Sariputta Abhidhamma Shastra were preserved both seem to have common origins. Okay, so this indicates the fact that there are three Abhidhamma systems which are quite different from each other indicates or suggests that there could have been a very primitive, very elementary Abhidharma system which formed the nucleus of these three different systems which would have evolved and taken their own separate tra- trajectories as the different monastic communities spread to different parts of India and settled there. So I would guess that it would have been groups in these monastic communities that worked out the details of each Abhidharma system. those legendary 18 schools that they each had their own Abhidhamma and that's what was distinctive about them. Mm. But we only have three now that, that remain. Yeah, whether all 18 schools had their own Abhidhamma, that, that I, I don't know. Mm. It's possible that several of the schools were following this. <laughs> yeah, maybe se- several schools were following basically the same Abhidhamma. Okay, we take in the back. Okay, you ask and then you ask. And then after your question, then we'll have to move on. Please. Okay, thank you. And thank you for this, um, Bonte. Thank you for this um, overview and um, context to understand this. Yeah. Yeah? And so in, the, in respect to the kind of overview and context, I'm trying to sort of place, is this all part of the Pali Canon that you mentioned? Is it the three baskets? Yeah. That the, the suttas, the vinaya, and the Abhidhamma, and yeah. are all these parts that you're now talking about, the um, the Matikas and the... The commentaries and the summaries. Right. Is that all part of the Pali Canon as well? It's not part of the Pali Canon. You see, there's a distinction. The Canon consists only of what we call canonical texts. But each of the canonical texts would have had a commentary written on it. The commentary, it's written, 
the commentaries are written in Pali, but the commentaries probably built up over several centuries and then they were edited and streamlined and put into their final form by mostly by Buddha Gosa, sometimes by other commentators. And then a later generation, maybe two centuries later, three centuries later, other scholars would have written the tikas, the sub-commentaries. And then the, the summaries would have come still later. But the, what's called the Chatta Sangayana, the Sixth Council Tripitaka that one finds online, put out by Sri Goenka's group in India, that includes both the canonical texts, the commentaries and sub-commentaries. So one gets all that material in Pali in that, that collection. But only the actual Pitakas are regarded as canonical texts. She asked, what, what does Vitaka mean? Vitaka, literally it means a basket. But more generally we could say it, or less literally, it means a collection. So Sutta Pitaka is the collection or compilation of the suttas, the discourses. Vinaya Pitaka, the compilation of the monastic regulations. Abhidhamma Pitaka, the compilation of the Abhidharma treatises. Okay, we'll take this question here. You mentioned the four slash five uh, Nikayas. Yeah. And the fifth one always gets tagged on. That's the Kudika? Or? Yeah, yeah. We were talking about in our local group this subject recently, and I wondered if you could give us some uh, characterization of that fifth one. Okay. And okay. also a little bit, if possible, if it's not too long a uh, discussion, of the chronology. Okay, very good question. Okay, within, the, you see, the word Kudika originally meant little. But of the five Nikayas, it turned out to be the biggest <laughs> because it contains an assortment of called miscellaneous texts. Some of these texts stem from a very early period, so we could regard most of them as belonging to roughly the same period as the four main Nikayas. Those texts would be Dhammapada, Suttanipata, Teragata, Terigata, Udana Itivutaka. No, Abhidhamma, I would say, is somewhat later. But some of these texts, like even Dhammapada, might contain verses that come from a later period. Teragata, Terigata, there might be verses that come from a later, somewhat later period. But within them, the bulk, we say, stems from a very early period. Okay, then we have texts which seem to have accrued a bit later, maybe several centuries later. One would be the Upadana, which are stories in verse about the backgrounds and past lives of the monks who became the great disciples, the nuns who became great disciples of the Buddha. Jataka, which are the verses which relate the past life events of the Buddha when he was existing in various past lives. Badana, Jataka. Some, what some of the others? Ch- yeah, the two, two very important. Charyabhitaka. That's again, it's like a selection of Jataka type stories. Then Buddha Vangsa is the story about how the person who is to become the Buddha Gotama formed his first vow to become a Buddha and then what he did under the 
during the careers of the other Buddhas. So I've heard that the ABC in popular Buddhism in Southeast Asia, it's not Dhammapada, Majjhima Nikaya, Sangyutta Nikaya, but the A is the Upadana, B is Buddha Vangsa, and C is the Charyabhitaka. <laughs> and then there are some texts which are almost like a, have almost like a commentarial nature, but it's from a very early period. These are, include one work, a philosophical work called Patisambhita Magga, the Book of Analysis, and another is called the Nidesa. The Nidesa is analysis of certain sections of the Sutta Nipata. So those texts are regarded as having arisen, it could be two or three centuries after the time of the Buddha. Okay, now I think I want to return back to the subject of the presentation. Okay, so now the heading is to try to find what I call continuity and objectives or aims between the Nikayas and the Abhidhamma. And now if you remember the Buddha's first discourse on the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha, after explaining each of the Noble Truths, he goes on to make a statement about each of the Noble Truths. Do you remember? The first Noble Truth, what is to be done with the first Noble Truth? Exactly, to be fully understood, parinyayang, dukkang satchang parinyayang, the truth of suffering is to be fully understood. The truth of the origin of suffering, what is the function or task regarding that truth? I heard it coming from this direction. Now it's coming from several directions. To be abandoned. So we have to eliminate the truth. The origin of suffering is craving, so that has to be abandoned or eliminated. The third noble truth, what is to be done with that? To be realized, to be experienced, known. Well, to be experienced, to be realized. And the fourth noble truth is the path, so what is to be done with the path? to be developed, to be cultivated. Now, we could see from the concerns of the early Abhidhamma that they are, the founders of the Abhidhamma, are the way I say it, they're constructing the Abhidhamma according to the pattern of the tasks set for the Four Noble Truths, particularly first, second, and fourth. Since the third truth which is Nibbana, is to be realized, one doesn't really have to say very much about that. It always enters into the Abhidhamma system, mainly through negation of the characteristics of the other noble truths. So, I have to jump ahead a little bit here. Okay, so the truth of suffering, so when the Buddha is explaining the quintessence of the truth of suffering, as we saw later, he explains this to mean the five aggregates which are subject to clinging. Those are the objects of clinging. And so to break that clinging to the five aggregates, one has to understand them. And understanding the five aggregates, the way it's expressed in the sutta, means that one understands the nature of each aggregate, what it is, 
one understands its arising, how it arises, and how it passes away. And this is also stated with regard to the six internal and external sense bases to understand what they are, how they arise, how they pass away. And so the Abhidhamma, what it is undertaking is a very detailed and exhaustive examination of the five aggregates, looking at them from many different angles. Some would say from too many angles, but (laughs) probably at an early period, the examination of the five aggregates was simpler and more concise. But as time went on, complexity set in and the system came to be developed and elaborated from different perspectives. Okay, then the origin of suffering is, we would say, what is the origin of suffering? Craving, and even deeper than craving, it's ignorance. So we could say ignorance and craving are the root causes of suffering. And to the task for this second noble truth is to abandon, to abandon ignorance and craving. And to abandon ignorance and craving, one has to know all of the factors that arise in association with ignorance and craving. And those factors come to be grouped together. They come to be incorporated into different sets of groups which are fall under the general designation of defilements, so we call them. Kilesa, so we have different groups of defilements. We have four words, very difficult to translate, asavas. Venerable Nyanamoli had used taints, which I kept in the translations that I did. I don't really like it so much. But I would maybe use now influxes, things that flow in. We have other defilements are called floods, bonds, hindrances, latent tendencies, fetters, and so on. Many lists of these sets of defilements. And these are just mentioned in the suttas. But what one finds in the Abhidhamma is these sets are broken down into their factors. Well, the factors are already mentioned in the suttas, but each of the factors is given a formal definition. And so you get to know in quite detail what each of these factors is. And then in order to eliminate the defilements, to eliminate the cause or origin of suffering, one has to develop basically the Noble Eightfold Path. But the suttas mention various other factors that are also almost equivalent with the Noble Eightfold Path, other factors that have to be developed. So what are some of these other factors to be developed? That's being too specific now. We want to get the broadest category. Yeah, 37 bodhipakiyas. And so that's you know, the four foundations of mindfulness, four right efforts, 
or memory is getting bad. Yeah. The basis for spiritual power, idipadas, five, five what? Right. You say the five faculties, then the five what? Powers, seven enlightenment factors, then eight path factors. So we have 37. So what we find again in the Abhidhamma is often the analysis, detailed analysis is made of these 37 Bodhipakya Dhammas. Again, they're treated both from the standpoint of the suttas, based using sutta formulas, but sometimes treating them in more detail, and then using the distinctive analytical system of the Abhidhamma to explain them. Okay, so in this way, we could say at an early period, finer, more detailed explanations were given of the factors to be fully understood, five aggregates, 12 sense bases, 18 elements, more detailed explanations of the different classes of defilements, formal definitions are given, the factors of the path are analyzed in greater detail. And so this, we could say, the kind of work that was going on during this period would be, I would conjecture, the missing link between the Sutta Bhitaka and the Abhidhamma Bhitaka. You know, this is in a way, it's something of a, a mystery to Buddhist scholarship that we have the Nikayas, which are the, regarded as the oldest trader of texts, the Abhidhamma Bhitaka, which generally it's dated maybe the earliest, the third century. So what was going on in this period between the Nikayas and the Abhidhamma? Of course, monks were meditating and <laughs> achieving realization, but there were other monks who were disposed to a, a more analytical investigation of the teaching, who wanted to understand its its implications, who had who were expounding it to others, and so they wanted to explain it in greater depth and detail. And so, in this way, I would assume that a continual expansion and elaboration was taking place until, at some point, these the systems that were emerging were compressed into the form of treatises or books. And that became the Abhidhamma Bhitaka. Okay, so now I'm dealing with the section of my outline called the emergence of the Abhidhamma. Okay, so it would seem that as these topics taken from the Sutta Bhitaka were being explored in greater detail, elaborated upon, the need arose or a need was felt for a kind of broader theoretical model which could encompass all of the elements of experience, all the elements of experience, all the defilements of the mind, all the factors to be developed for enlightenment, to bring these together into one very broad framework. And the problem that one finds in the Nikayas, 
is that often there's no explicit correlation between the sets or the schemes that are set up for classifying the factors of experience. For example, in the suttas, we have five aggregates, and then there are 12 sense bases, which are said to include the all. You know the sutta on the all? I will teach you amongst the all. What is the all? The eye and forms, ear and sounds, etc., etc. Mind and mental phenomena. So, in some sense, everything that's in the five aggregates should be in the 12 sense bases. Or is it? That I don't know. Then there are the 18 elements, which include six senses, six objects, six types of consciousness. So how do these all relate to one another? The sutta doesn't make that explicit. So we could conjecture. Sometimes we find people who just follow the suttas come to different opinions about it. And sometimes they divide quite bitterly over their different opinions. But when we come to the Abhidhamma, well, one also finds different opinions. <laughs> but the Abhidhamma, at least one of the works of the Abhidhamma, tends, uh, attempts to bring all of these together into one all-embracing scheme that relates what are the what of the form aggregate, which sense bases belong to the form aggregate, which elements belong to the form aggregate, where do the aggregates, feeling, perception, volitional activities, where do they belong amongst the sense bases, amongst the elements? So we could see that you know, these later generations of monks were exploring these issues. And when I say monks, probably nuns were also exploring, but let the word monks serve because there's a poem in the Terigata, right, where a junior nun says that I approached the elder nun so-and-so and she taught me the aggregates, the sense bases, and the elements. She approached Patachara, right. Okay, then what happens in the Abhidhamma is that certain categories found in the suttas come to be expanded, particularly this is the Sankara Kanda, the fourth aggregate, which is the one which usually puzzles people the most. You know, physical form one could understand. It's matter. Feeling, perception, relatively clear. Consciousness, still question arises, the relation between consciousness and perception. But the Sankaras, what are the Sankaras? Now, in the suttas, the, sankha, the aggregate of the sankharas is explained very simply as the six types of volition. Volition regarding forms, volition regarding sounds, regarding odors, tastes, tactile objects, and mental phenomena. But the suttas mention a lot of other mental phenomena like thought, examination, greed, hatred, delusion, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, loving-kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, equanimity, um, conceit, wrong views, doubt, restlessness. Where do they belong? So one thing that the Abhidhamma does is to incorporate them all in the aggregate of sankharas. So they all become modes or forms of the sankhara aggregate. 
Okay, and now since the founders of the Abhidhamma are focusing so much on the factors of the mind, in time they attempted to provide a very comprehensive map of the mind, detailing, specifying all the different types of mental states that might arise. And so you could see a subtle movement starting to take place away from specifications that are concerned very directly with practice, with practical experience, to providing a theoretical account of how cognition takes place, how the mind functions. And so one comes to the conception of a basic unit of consciousness or basic unit of experience, which is called technically cheat upada. And so in time, instead of using the five aggregates, which are more concretely related to the work of insight as a practice, the citupada, the occasion of mind and occasion of experience, comes to be used as the basis for investigation. And then the task that the formulators set for themselves is to specify the various factors of mind, or let's call them mental factors, present on an occasion of experience, on an occasion of mind. And so one finds that chitta, mind, is used as the primary constituent of an occasion of of mind, an occasion of experience. And then instead of relying on the distinction between feeling, perception, mental activities, volitional activities, since all of the other mental factors are now being included in the aggregate of volitional activities, one gets a specification of all the factors present on any occasion of experience. Though here there's something of a subtle difference, uh, even an important difference between the canonical Abhidhamma texts and the later summaries. Like if you follow the later summaries, like Abhidhamma Sangaha, you learn when such and such a state of mind arises, there are 36 mental factors present, or 32 mental factors, or 27 mental factors. And so one comes away thinking, wow, there are only these mental factors present on such a state of mind. But what about this? What about that? But the canonical Abhidhamma is more open than the later summaries. It's not so much a fixed and closed system because after it enumerates the factors that are present on any occasion of mind, it always adds the phrase, in Pali it's yevapana, which means whatever else. Excuse me? Yeah, yeah. Whatever other factors might be present on that occasion, all those belong to this state of mind. You know, so it leaves the door open to bring in other factors that the text itself doesn't mention. Yeah, maybe it's good if you take the, if that floating microphone is around. So in moving on 
historically um, from using the five aggregates experientially in practice to specifying, uh, elaborating these factors in more of a theoretical map. Was there also an accompanying experiential practice that was broken down that much more minutely um, yeah. to follow the map? Yeah, definitely that seems to have been the case. In fact, there, there are some meditation teachers today, most prominently Pauk Soyador, who uses the model of the Abhidharma as absorbed, well, yeah, the model of the Abhidharma detailed analysis of the material form aggregate, the states of consciousness and the mental factors as his model for practice. And the Visuddhi Magga, to some extent, uses that system as its model for, for practice. Thank you. Okay, now what happened eventually, over time, as we come from the canonical Abhidhamma to the Abhidhamma summaries, and I think perhaps to the Abhidhamma commentaries, is that the old scheme of, well, the five aggregates, and then this, because of how to put this? The canonical Abhidhamma used this method of drawing out the factors present on an occasion of experience in order to understand the nature of the mind. In the Abhidhamma commentaries and the Abhidhamma summaries, a new scheme emerges for understanding the f- nature of experience. These are called the four ultimates, the four ultimate realities, which are citta or mind, Chaitasika, which are the mental factors, Rupa, material form, and then Nibbana, which is the final goal. So then Chitta is held to comprise all the different classes of consciousness, and Chitta is then equated with, in the five aggregate scheme, Vinyana, I'm sorry, with consciousness in the old scheme of the five aggregates. Then the three middle aggregates, feeling, perception, mental formations of volitional activities come to be included in the chaitasikas, which means mental factors. And then the form aggregate is broken down into a multitude of subordinate or secondary types of form, all of that goes into the form aggregate. And so the five aggregates come to be included within these three categories. And then the world transcending state, the state of final liberation, is included in the scheme as Nibbana. Usually when you study the Abhidhamma based on the summary of Abhidhamma, they'll start you right off by telling you there are four, according to the Abhidhamma, there are four ultimate realities. Chitta, Chaitasika, Rupa, Nibbana. Before I left, I think I was still already in California, before I came here, I wanted to examine, do we find the scheme in the old Abhidhamma Bhitaka itself? And I couldn't find it evident there. So it's something that developed out of the Abhidhamma Bhitaka, but it becomes explicit only in the summary texts. 
not in the canonical text. Okay, now I've covered the material for the first session, which is in a way, maybe you could call this a preparation for the Abhidhamma or a preface to the Abhidhamma. We have about 15 minutes, so if there are questions, please, again, feel welcome to ask questions. We'll start here, to my left. Not sure how to ask. Um, Go ahead, I'll try I, to interpret. I very much appreciated um, one of our first introductions to you, which was your essay, A Challenge to Buddhists. Mm. And I guess, as a beginning student, I'm wondering... How does your study of the Abhidhamma inform or enliven your work to alleviate suffering in the world? I don't think it works directly on me in that way. Yeah, I, I don't think that's, that there's a direct connection between the two. It's more what I would say the Buddhist values of metta and karuna, loving kindness and compassion, that have inspired that side of my work. Abhidhamma? <laughs> it isn't really. It's very, very interesting and very important, I'd say, not to know, maybe like specifying how many chaitasikas, how many mental factors are present in this type of consciousness, how many mental factors are present in that state of consciousness. That's a little bit like um, counting the angels on the head of a pin but having a very clear understanding, say, the way the Abhidhamma presents the definitions of the different types of defilements, the way it uh, lays out the different factors that lead to enlightenment, all of these and the things to be understood, giving very precise explanations of the five aggregates, the 12 sense bases, the 18 elements, all of that has very practical significance. Because basically the task as for practicing Dharma, for practicing Buddhism, is to fully understand or to clearly understand the truth of suffering, which doesn't mean knowing just pain and misery, but understanding the five aggregates, then eliminating the defilements, which are the cause of suffering, and then practicing the bodhipakiyas, the aids to enlightenment, in order to attain Nibbāna. So the Abhidhamma, you know, when you get into a lot of the detail, you don't need that much detail, I have to say, very frankly. But to get the broad contours of the Abhidhamma, to see the points that it's driving at, could be very helpful in the practice in that respect. Yep, this gentleman right here with the blue jacket. I'm surprised that there's as much disagreement as there is in terms of basic... uh, Buddhist, practice, Buddhist uh, principles. Um, I would have assumed, of course not, just, just a guess, that, that um, beings that are considered to be realized would, would have more agreement more uh, on this. And, and I guess there's a secondary uh, um, question around uh, the idea that 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 there is an evolution to understanding. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I just, I guess I'd love to hear your, your comments on okay, that. Okay, let's take each one in turn. 
I think it's quite possible for enlightened people, I don't know whether I would use the expression disagree, but looking at, they would look at things from different angles and interpret from different angles because we all have our own distinct individual temperaments, our own sort of pre, how do you call this, predispositions to interpret and to understand. And so even amongst the direct disciples of the Buddha, well, if you take that sutta that I mentioned earlier, it's called the larger discourse on, the larger discourse in the Gosinga forest. Sariputta asks each of the monks, what is your conception of the ideal monk? Then each one explains differently. So Ananda will say that here a monk is learned, erudite, one who knows the Dhamma well, and he's able to teach and expound and elaborate the Dhamma, speaking to the four assemblies. So Ananda has his disposition. Then another monk named Revita. Here a monk is a forest dweller who lives in solitude and seclusion and delights in the deep states of meditation. Mahamogalana explains the monk who's able to discuss with another monk on the Abhidhamma, questioning and answering. Mahakasapa explains that the monk is one, the ideal monk, one who practices the ascetic practices. So naturally there are different dispositions, different ways of understanding things. And they can be complementary, not necessarily contradictory. Okay, and then as to the development of understanding, I think this would be something that was already taking place during the Buddha's lifetime. We could see, if we look through the Sutta Bhitaka, that there are suttas where the monks will meet together, then somebody will bring up a saying of the Buddha, and they'll ask, how do you interpret this saying? Then each will explain in his own way how they interpret the the saying. Here there's disagreement, and their explanations will be something, each explanation will be something original to that particular monk. He's not just repeating something that he's heard from the Buddha. So this is, would be the seed for elaboration that they're trying to bring out the significance of the Buddha's statement as that statement has taken root in the soil of their own mind and is germinating within the garden of their own mind. And maybe we could see that the same thing is taking place across history as Buddhism Know, enters in different historical periods where there's a different predominant mode of thought, different ways of seeing things, different ways of approaching experience, then the Buddha's teaching will start to blossom in new, new ways, unexpected ways. Like maybe the Abhidhamma period would be when we'd have to look across the broad spectrum of Indian thought at that period, that there was a tendency to present things in numerical sets, which might have been growing more and more complex. And so the Buddhists also were following suit by developing the Abhidhamma in that way. Okay, we'll take this woman with the white shawl, and then we'll take the blue sweater. Um, I'm very inspired by your historical view in this way, and just wondering, from your point of view... um, what do you think this particular time is providing? Okay, this, <laughs> that's a subject for a lecture in itself. 
what I'd say is that there's a great concern to apply the Dhamma to everyday life. Now, lifestyles have become much more diverse, much more different than in the Buddha's time. In the Buddha's time, say, mass, of course, there were different social strata, but the mass of the people that the Buddha addressed were incorporated on the general, under the general category of householder. They would have their pretty much a, a well-established lifestyle, marry, have many children, work at some job or farming, owning land or business. And so the teachings would be relatively simple and standardized for people living a fairly uniform, following a fairly uniform style of life. Now, I would say that there's a, a much greater diversity of lifestyles, and so we have to see how the Dharma can apply to this diversity of lifestyles. And I say that there's now a much greater concern of how to bring the Dharma into this world. But I'm not a follower of what they call secularized Buddhism or secular Buddhism. I still always believe in the importance of I call the transcendent element in Buddhism and the religious dimension. But I think that there has to be some effort to not to regard life in the world and life in the Dhamma as two spheres which are quite distinct from each other. And certainly I don't think the Buddha treated the Dhamma in that way. And that comes out quite clearly, I think, amongst all the collections in the Anguttara Nikaya, which you can now get from Wisdom Publications (laughs) in a new translation. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but you see in the Anguttara Nikaya a great number of suttas which are addressed to lay people on right livelihood, happy marriages, how to bring up children, children how how to treat their parents. Then... Point the woman with the blue sweater. One of the challenges in understanding the Dharma is that terms, identical terms, are used in different contexts with different meanings and different yeah. ways. Yeah. And so um, the elements that we, the 18 elements, yeah. I thought I knew the elements, there were four of them. So yeah. <laughs> um, what is the sense of these 18 elements? Mm. Yeah, the word datu, that's here translated element, also refers to, we speak about the three realms, the sense sphere realm, fine material realm, or or form realm and formless realm, is the same word, datu. Now we have the four elements, which are four material elements, that's the earth, water, fire, and air elements. Sometimes those are expanded to six by adding the space element, and the consciousness element. Then the 18 elements are the six sense faculties, six sense objects, and six types of consciousness. So the word datu in that sense would seem to have the meaning maybe of constituent, a distinct constituent. So the 18 elements would be the distinct constituents of experience. The four datus would be the distinct constituents or primary constituents of matter or substance. The three realms would be the constituents of the cosmos. 
Okay, Thank you. the woman with her hand up in the back there. Then I will look on this side of the room. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, my question is about the relationship, the, the somatic relationship. Somatic relation, okay. Okay, and the notion of how much is stored in our bodies or yeah. is experienced in our bodies that yeah. is never comes yeah. to consciousness yeah. and is also passed across generations yeah. just genetically or yeah. you know in kind of little packets and yeah. and so how does that get expressed yeah. within this taxonomy which is yeah. so elegant I'll have to think about that question I don't have a ready answer for it certainly things like genetic codes you know we don't find that mentioned explicitly within either the Abhidhamma or the Sutta. But even at a, at a more gross level, yeah. you the, relation, the, the somatic like relationship, yeah. I mean, is that, is that one of those emergent qualities um, that is in part the time that we live in, um, that there's so much knowledge that is emerging yeah. with regards to biochemistry yeah. and physiology. Yeah, I would say definitely that these are new areas which are open, opening up new vistas of understanding. So I say we can't expect to find everything that we know today about you know, biology, psychology, biochemistry, and so on in either the Nikayas or the Abhidhamma Bhitaka. Maybe we could see certain you know, principles there which we might then try to relate to contemporary developments, like there are Abhidhamma texts which speak about the relationships or conditionality between body and consciousness, consciousness and body, though they don't specify it, this relationship in the detail that a modern, what would be a biopsychologist would, would, do, would do today. Okay. Yeah, maybe I'll have to write some more commentaries. Yeah, I, I know what the time is. We could take, say, two questions on this side, then we'll have to break for the lunch period. So I see a hand up in this row here. I can't read your names from this distance. Uh, Andrea is, is okay. my name. Uh, I, I was just wondering, when you were talking about the, the suttas foreshadowing, you know, the, the yeah. discussions that the monks would have together about the Dhamma, yeah. And I've heard, I don't know this firsthand, but I've heard that in the Tibetan tradition yeah. that people debate. Right. And I'm assuming that that is a similar thing, but maybe not. And But I'm wondering if in monastic yeah. groups currently that in the Theravada tradition, mm. whether in fact monks debate similarly or have discussions similarly in order to learn for themselves and embody these teachings? Yeah, I don't know whether there's a tradition of debate quite similar to what they have in the Tibetan tradition because I think the tradition of debating that was absorbed, that one finds in Tibetan Buddhism developed out of the situation in India say 7th, 8th, ninth centuries where the followers of the Buddha system were debating with the followers of the Hindu systems and they have to make a 
pledge that whoever wins in debate, whoever loses in debate will have to convert to the system of the victor in the debate. And so then out of those debates, some of the Buddhist philosophers develop rules, rules of reasoning, rules of logic, which became the criteria for evaluating performance and debate. But what does take place, I believe, in Burma, students have to memorize the Abhidhamma texts, and then the teachers in the evening will question them on the Abhidhamma texts, and they have to be able to answer without hesitation, in the darkness, without being able to look at books. Thank okay, you. we'll take one more question from this Andrew. I could you read your name. Yeah. Thank you for your beautiful teaching. Oh, thank you. I'm right now feeling such a beautiful overwhelm. So many lists and matikas and submatikas, <laughs> yeah. and it feels like a, an atlas, a list of cities, yeah. and I'm trying to keep the link between the journey itself yeah, and reading yeah, yeah. through yeah, a yeah. gazetteer of, of yeah, cities. Yeah. In your own practice, yeah. how do you ensure, what are some ways that you ensure that all of your beautiful scholarship, yeah. the historical work, yeah. the theoretical, the analytical, yeah. you um, stays connected, all of that work supports the experiential nature of your practice rather than drawing you away from it? I try to keep my own personal meditation practice extremely simple. <laughs> I, I don't rely on the you know, complex lists and diagrams and matikas and so on from the Abhidhamma, but I do know from the Abhidhamma, well, particularly from the suttas, but as elaborated in the Abhidhamma, what are the factors like the defilements? And sometimes one could see states that one would consider defilements that maybe are not treated so explicitly in the Abhidhamma. Maybe, in, in my case, impatience. <laughs> there is mention of worry and <laughs> sometimes a little bit of anxiety, not treated explicitly in the Abhidhamma. But I try to keep things simple rather than to get carried away by ways of thought. Okay, knowing, but knowing what states are defilements, what states are bodhipakiyadamas, things that are aiding enlightenment. And I use largely, since I have a religious te temperament, a process based upon using sadha or faith as a starting point to develop energy and mindfulness, and then cultivating energy and mindfulness in, in unison. It's inspired by faith and then moving towards what are called panya or insight. But you guys don't keep things simple. <laughs> First one has to go through the complexities, then simplify. Okay, I think we have to break now for the lunch period. Then we come back. So, um, well, wonderful morning all the way around, huh? And uh, thank you for those very insightful questions. It was really... I, I celebrate this for the people who will listen to it, you know, on the, uh, from Dharma Seed, because uh, your questions help uh, made it relevant for those who will listen from a distance. So thank you for that. The rest of the morning consists of a, uh, at this point, a 10-minute break for walking or stretching or bathroom break.
and then we're, uh, we're going to have you come back in and sit. And we'd like to have a practice leader because we have to, as you can see, these days are a little more complicated and we have to assemble, uh, have a teacher meeting here at this time. So um, who would, would you lead the sit? Thank you very much. So a 10-minute break. We're still in silence. And then come back in and sit. And I know some of you may go, oh, it's a good time to go for a walk before lunch or something. But you've received a lot of information here. And it's a kind of inspiring information. So I would encourage you to sit with it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.